0: And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I always love when we're able to go down to South Brooklyn, to Bay Ridge, Fort Hamilton, and the likes, because it's it's such a great representation of the variety of Americana that is provided to anybody who wants to explore uh, the the former city of Brooklyn, as I like to say. And uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome on Fort Hamilton native and New York City theater artist, Stefan Morrow. Stefan, it's funny that we had to go all the way to L.A., just like the Dodgers, uh, just to meet each other and talk <laughs> about Brooklyn.
1: <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> that's actually, that's... Uh... It's a very special place, the uh, the Beechwood Cafe up there. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's a local hangout, and um, I lived near there at the bottom of Beechwood Canyon, and um, it's just one of those quaint, authentic uh, little places that reminded me of back East. In fact, uh, not so mm-hmm. different from a lot of the places we knew in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. It, so yeah, yeah. I'm. Big, fr-
0: that's a that's a great point about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's why I go there. I I um I moved to 96th Street between Marine Avenue and Shore Road when I was between four and five, uh, and it was probably the best thing my parents ever did in their parenting because it was uh, it was just a really great place to grow up. Uh, it was very Americana. Uh, it was uh, I was a Cub Scout at Fort in Fort Hamilton. I became a Boy Scout, and that was probably the healthiest thing pre-adolescent you, you could do. Um, of course, in, in eighth grade, uh, we started going to what they call confraternity dances at St. Patrick's up at, uh, I think it was 4th Avenue at 95th, and they were that was the first, you know, boys and girls getting together and dancing and a little rock and roll, and that was the end of Boy Scouts for me, <laughs> so... But, so if we can, um,
0: if we can give yeah. a, a context, if we can give a little context to the listeners as to what year it was when you did, uh, you were five years old. So what year? You know, I I, I, I apologize if uh, you don't want to give your age, but uh, I'm just uh, curious for the audience as to exactly when you went to <clears throat> Bay Ridge. It, it
1: was it, it was it was the year the Dodgers left, so it must have been fifty eight or nine or something like that. Uh, Duke Snyder. Uh, I went to kindergarten with his son, or at least I knew him. And uh, I was, I was really, you know, young. Um, and I knew, I, I didn't, I know the names, uh, Carl Erskine, Juan Campanella, they they were all on the block at 97th street, I believe it was. Uh, and we were on 96. So it, you know, they were really in the neighborhood, which is, you know, as, as a, as a toddler almost, I, I, you know, all I can say was it was a great. I don't. know, Somehow, it, I think his name was Kevin. We we uh, were drawn to one another. There were other kids around, but we became pretty tight. And then, before I know it, before I knew it, they they moved away. They were gone overnight, like a puff of smoke. I know a lot of Brooklyn people resent that, but I, you know, my my father was a Yankee fan, so it didn't much matter to him. I guess. <laughs> so so uh,
0: what what uh, role did baseball provide uh, 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 play
1: excuse me in your life early on uh, my My father saw himself as uh, a modernistic, progressive parent, so he would actually be the only parent who would come down to the ball fields along the Belt parkway on the narrows along the water. There was three ball fields down there at ninety six and um he would play ball with us and that was a big deal um of course <laughs> i don't know that that may speak to my the, the kind of relationship we had but i was i really didn't want him there you know i wanted to be away from the family and with my my friends but you know he saw it as something uh, going out a little beyond uh, uh the norm and actually giving some time to us kids uh he was also pretty critical I, I was not a great ball player; He was a very good ball player, and um, i I did eventually get onto a team. but you know, I was small, and I just remember they had these tall guys. it was uh, It was a team out of St. Mary's Orthodox Church. It wasn't a denomination really, but it was a team. You know we had uniforms, we were in a league. but you know, they had these six foot guys, and I was in like seventh grade. And you know they were pitching. You know, I mean they were like, and so I I just couldn't really. Was not a great hitter. I was just too small and just not that good. I was a center fielder, and uh, uh, I was pretty good at that. Um, I did I did have my moment of truth. <laughs> Some guy hit a way high fly ball to center field, and you know on Show Road the winds jockey the ball back and forth is coming is coming and boy my my reputation my life was on the line but i caught the damn thing and so if i hadn't forget it you know but um right yeah so so i i guess so uh, everybody uh, in this everybody played after school softball touch right. football uh in the wintertime there's some big hills uh, the uh, the Norwegian segment of the population would actually put up a ski jump right at 96 and and uh, on those hills. So, uh, but that's the kind of place it was. Uh, it was not, you know. It became after Saturday Night Fever and The Godfather, everybody sort of sounded like those characters in that. But before that, it was very uh, surprisingly waspish in tone. There was still a lot of big mansions on Shore Road itself. Um, it, a lot of big houses on that block on uh, 96th Street off of Marine. Right. Uh, and then the building started going up. Uh, and I, I went back there about 25 years ago. And my God, there's buildings all over. Shore Road was one line of, of buildings. Um, I learned how to ride a two-wheeler right at 99th and Shore Road. I remember I had a cousin pushing me she you know pushed me down the hill and i took off and that was that's a that's the kind of experience you never forget
0: um right
1: no it, it was it was really cool now um what else there was um i was very uh we had well there was um one of the teachers at 104 two of them so there was a teacher named miss mcchane who was still alive um she had a very good science class. Um, As a matter of fact, over the summer, if you wanted to get into her, it was like 7-1 and 8-1, the one class. You had to put together a collection of tree leaves of all the local trees. So you made a book with white paper, and it was amazing how many different varieties of trees were in that area. And one of those kids that I grew up with, his name was Robert Selley. He was like a walking encyclopedia about flora and fauna, and we I befriended he was a bit of an eccentric kid. I befriended him. we would go out to Staten Island and we went to some place called the Serpentine Quarry. He made a an exhibit about ecology about that, and it won first prize in the New York City science fair that was in sixth grade and um, in eighth grade, uh, my parents split up just before that so In eighth grade, I took the test for all the public schools in Manhattan, uh, Bronx Science, Stuyvesant, Brooklyn Tech, and for some reason I chose Stuyvesant and I got in. That was a, a, you know, that was what took me into Manhattan and I basically never looked back and my life changed a lot. Um, Suddenly I was hanging out at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art. That was our or a candy store to hang out in after school, you know, the Museum of Modern which is terrific. I, I became obsessed with the visual arts, painting and sculpture. Um, and uh, I, I was very lucky. I, I got an art history teacher named Marsha Tucker, um, was just a brilliant lecturer on all the classical artists, Caravaggio, Rembrandt, uh, Gauguin, Van Gogh, everybody. And she made it come alive. And that, was, that also factored into that. We became, at that by then I was about 16, and a real denizen of the trenches of working artists, painters, and sculptors. So she would bring us around to different artists, uh, lofts and whatnot. And it was when the Fulton Fish Market still had, it was the last bastion, of working artists in New York, the Fulton Fish Market, before it became uh, Disneyland on the pier. Um, And so (laughs) I ended up, yeah, I ended up staying in this building that a sculptor who was not known at the time, Mark DeSuvero, he's now global. He made these sculptures of eye steel beam pieces that would move back a little bit, back and forth. He's up at the Storm King Art Center He's global now. Uh, and he needed someone to stay at his building because he had let all his friends store their art, paintings, sculptures. And to me, it was like being William Randolph Hearst and Xanadu with all his art pieces. It was amazing, <laughs> amazing. Now, now, yeah, and, and it was an ancient building. It was so old, third floor, the roof was on a slant because the ships would come right up to the roofs of these buildings in the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, I would get a, I would get a, a a cup of clam broth. I was, I was, by then I was apprenticing at the public theater. And, uh, so I'd come down there on my bike. I would cycle down there and uh, they were open all night. So like three in the morning, you'd get a cup of clam broth at the fish store at the corner of the building for a nickel. And, um, it, it was a glorious time. Uh Marsha Tucker went on to found the new museum, which is on the Bowery. She, uh God rest her soul. She went way, way too early. Um, but she was monumental in, 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 in my life, so so far as the arts went. Um so, so And that if, was if that I, was uh, the, if I uh, go ahead.
0: If I may ask in terms of the arts, and, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, that early part of your life in Brooklyn and playing baseball and, and having that, you know, in the, in the 60s, of course, like, like the, the, the Dodgers weren't there anymore, but the echoes, of course, uh, of history and, and, you know, what you're talking about with both the Bowery as well as Fulton Fish Market and, and Brooklyn, you know, one of the things that, that draws me to this story about the borough and former city of Brooklyn is the independent chip on its shoulder and how these echoes are, are throughout uh, Brooklyn if you, if you know about them and look for them. Um, and, I was, it, you I was, know, it's it, – it, it, yeah.
1: I was knocked out man, to man. find out that Robert e. Lee, Robert e. Lee was a commandant of Fort Hamilton for something like four years I, before the war.
0: Yeah, that's, it, that's, and I didn't even, I didn't even know that.
1: I I read that absolutely yeah yeah that and, may be why and, they and call so, Fort Lee in New Jersey
0: what right and and so oh that's so interesting I never uh, yeah I have to look into that yeah, too, you know, which he, is also he, he, a, a, a a foundation he, Fort Lee is a big foundation for for uh, cinema history as well um my my question I oh, guess, yeah. for you yeah my uh, my question for you here is how how is it that you know in segueing basically. You know, obviously, some people can have sports and the arts at the same time, but it seemed as if you segued away from sports once you moved out of Brooklyn and discovered the arts within, uh, you know, Stuyvesant High School and Manhattan itself, the city. Well, you know, the city, as at, they call in, it.
1: Back, yeah, back in in the city, right? Back in Brooklyn, after school every day, it was part of the social. Uh, socialization process we would go down to the water and we'd play softball, touch football uh, baseball um, it was just part of the life you what well, you did every day after school it was healthy um, and uh, but you know you're, you're at that point in your life you 're young you 're really just following the program that 's around you now it is true that in sixth grade a cousin who lived, actually, her family, her her mother and father uh, and her, lived across the street on 96th Street in a house. Um, uh, She became a painter and took herself very seriously. And she moved to the village, and she lived with a guy who was was a a writer. And he was rather well-known. His name was Len Nadeau, and he he eventually uh, – he, he just was an interesting dude. He worked on the boats. He would go away, and then he'd come back. Um, so I hung out with them on several weekends in sixth grade. In fact, one time they left me alone in the apartment, which <clears throat> which was great for me. He had all these uh, Playboys and, and, and uh, uh, books, books. Uh, on Charles Street. So we'd go around and visit artists lofts, you know, way over on the West side, uh, uh, was it, uh, Ganservort, which was also a place where artists painted, uh, the meat market. Now it becomes posh. Oh my God. You know, velvet rope places now, but back then artists, they liked the light cause it was near the Hudson. So anyway, the point is I had some exposure to the arts and, uh, and then, uh, let me see, uh, then there was also, we, my family, mother, father, had little salons in the apartment, uh, and there was uh, uh, the Marlows, Peter Marlowe was there, would come, they would come over, they would play chess, they would have a little gathering, um, and Dennis Moore, who became uh, principal of 104 after I was there, um, he became very close to the family, and um, as a matter of fact, I was brought to um, many musical Broadway shows at that time uh, by Dennis Moore. Um, now, I was not a singer. I was not a dancer, but I appreciated, you know, going to theater, and that you might say that was the beginning, the inkling of, of a life in theater that I would come to have, um, But uh, let's see. Um, There was another guy that was a really peculiar cat. His name was John Ray, and he lived at 128 Marine, which was in the corner of 96th and Marine. And he was a Harvard graduate. I met him because he he was photographing uh, football, what we were doing, football, touch football, baseball, and he was a photographer. And that's how he introduced us himself. And we would, a few of my friends from that area uh, would go up to his apartment and uh, he would have hockey on the tube, but with no sound, with classical music going. He was a Harvard graduate. He, uh, um, he was a computer specialist. This is way early in the digital age. So that was our hangout. And it was, and he, we would discuss things. we we were again, we were in about seventh to eighth grade um it was it was like a pretty cool, cool thing to have uh a lot of chess uh reading playboys for the literature of the things you know <laughs> but but it was a, a kind of an intellectual haven um anyway that was another so and then um in the end, uh, Robert and I, his mother worked at Hunter in the lab or something. She found out about a, a camp where they studied nature, and you had to take a test to get a scholarship to go there. It was up in was it Mount Washington, Massachusetts, something like that. It was a wonderful summer, and we both got in, and, um, uh, uh, it's, it's, and that friendship started with, uh, with me accompanying him He was kind of a lonely guy. He he ended up going to the SP program at McKinley High School. And so he ended up at Stuyvesant a year ahead of me. Uh, Then, By the way, there was another on 98th Street. It was a dead-end street. And it was a lot of... um, I just heard that there was a Reddington family up there. And the sister of the kid I knew, Richie Reddington, he's gone. But she just recently passed away. She was a folk singer, and I didn't. She was an older person to us, but I remember, you know, in her little kind of beatniky-looking outfit, going to the city to sing, and she ended up uh, being quite successful doing uh, uh, jingles for commercials and what. She just recently passed away, like a couple of months ago. Uh, but 98th Street was really, really interesting. On July 4th, they would pay the cops off and they would have a night of July 4th fireworks. I mean fireworks, I mean mats, what they called a mat, was like, I don't know, 144 packages of, of firecrackers. They would have cherry bombs, they would have rock, I mean they they, they were, and the parents would, would watch over the thing to make sure no one got hurt. So that was their, that was a big July 4th celebration. And uh, the next day, and this is true, it had almost a foot of firecracker papers in the street that you waded through. Uh, it was an incredible uh, uh, experience. So I don't have any idea. I was, you know, I was just a visitor. I hung out at that block a lot, but I had no idea you know, how it all got arranged and all of that. But it was, um, it was something really eccentric and unique and unusual that was happening back then. Um, so...
0: Let's let's jump all the way back to uh, when you moved to Brooklyn in in 57 uh, or, you know, you said the Dodgers had just left. So the Dodgers left at the end of 57 58 was the first year they were in Los Angeles. You mentioned beat Nick uh, you uh, uh, about the folk singers. So it, it kind of makes me curious about pop culture of the time and, and your, uh, uh, you know, while obviously you're playing baseball after school, and we were talking about that within the context of Fort Hamilton, um, what what you know, obviously there must have been some foundation of the arts for you when it came to to music and movies and TV. What what are some of the, your memories of of the way that left an indelible impression on you as you were growing up in the uh, in the '60s?
1: Well, well, Wendy, before we leave Brooklyn, there's one other thing. In Fort Hamilton was the Cub Scout troop, and uh, it, when I remember going there, my mother brought me there one day, and, and it was like, first of all, inside the fort was really interesting, gray, wooden, two-story barracks and things like that, and there were these kids, Cub Scouts, and they were throwing up in the into the air like a, a wooden spool which had strings attached to it and a little white chute. So you would toss the thing high as you could in the air, and it would float down. And as you know, silly as that sounds, um, it was really like a light bulb going off for me, saying, "Wow, I want part of this." You know, and so I became a, a, a Cub Scout, which led to Boy Scouts later. So anyway, uh, again, I I think, you know, I think a lot of people, again, they start in their early earliest youth following the context in which they're growing. Uh, but around the time of adolescence, there's a, like I said, a couple of seeds were sprouted early on, uh, starting in sixth grade when I would, my, my parents in their, I I don't know how they came across. They must've perceived something about, even though I was like every other kid playing ball every day and good at it, fairly good at it. Um, they must have seen a kernel of something or I, 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 you know, I, I don't know because they allowed me and they were pretty strict. They allowed me to uh, go off on a weekend with his cousin and her, her guy in the village. And, um, I, you know, uh, that was, that was really, uh, I could, could be a seminal point. Um, but I have to say that may have been the beginning, but it was, uh, it was a long road to hoe after that. Um, I went through a lot of changes. Um, as a teenager, you know, I think there comes a point where you want to you establish your identity. And somehow I took it into my head that, you know, no blue jeans for me. So I remember going to the lower, lower east, east side, like Delancey Street, where they had clothing shops with no front window. They would have stacks of clothing on these rods, and so I was looking. I I started collecting uh, accoutrement for myself to this definition of who I wanted to be, which is like you know promenading on the uh, you know on the boulevard in a in a beige wraparound coat with um, a beret uh, and an ascot. I mean, you know, you, you do stuff like that when you're a teenager trying to. Define yourself, establish your identity. Uh, I didn't want to have anything off the racks. And, um, and then I would go to, to the Museum of Modern Art, and uh, sometimes I, I became uh, – I, I, being there, I had a lot to say about the paintings. So I became kind of like a self-appointed docent. I mean, I, I was able to engage a lot of people in conversation, um, and, and it, it, I, it was like I was part of the museum almost. Um, and then they had a, a film program, which was the best film education you could possibly have. A, guy, a critic for the New York Times, Bosley Crowworth, had a series called The 50 Best Films, in his opinion. And they, had, they played such incredible... The first time I saw Children of Paradise which is about 1860s Paris. It was the only film the Nazis allowed the French to make during the occupation because they thought of it as an escapist romance. Uh, when it was really more than that, the the, the the playwright character in that story was based on Adolf Hitler. So the, the, the Nazis didn't get that. So they allowed it to be made and play. Then, I mean, they did, they had Camille, they had uh, D.W. Griffith films, uh, Birth of the Nation, uh, Greed, Intolerance. It was an incredible education. And that led, at Stuyvesant, uh, after school, we'd go to the Bleecker Street Cinema, and I remember seeing Fellini, uh, Eight and a Half, and Juliet of Spirits, and I had no idea what I had just seen. But I knew that I wanted to see it again. I mean, it was so far beyond, you know, kind of Hollywood product. It it was it was to us. I was you know sophomores. I was it was indecipherable, but it was so engaging, so magical uh, that we started. That's where I learned a lot about film by going to the Bleecker Street Cinema. It's not there anymore, but that was that was important. Um, uh, Yeah, so that's great. At the end, yeah. How about music? Music, um, well, I'll start with Saturday Night Fever, which I loathed.
0: <laughs> and, and of course, of it, course, uh, I'm pretty sure, I have to, everybody's going to hate me, or not hate me, but hate on me. Uh, I have not seen Saturday Night Fever, and I should, considering I believe he's from Bensonhurst, am I correct? Who is who? Uh, the the miss character that. that John Travolta plays.
1: Oh, well, it was about, it was about, uh, that part of Brooklyn. I, um, yeah, but, but what I'm getting at is I was, I had a very weird, um, schizophrenic taste in music. I, I studied piano by the way, at 128 Marine with a teacher named Mrs. Acker for five years. And I, I didn't like to practice, uh, I had a good touch, but I really wanted to be out playing ball with the rest of the guys. But I studied it for five years, and I ended up – the height of my musical career was playing the second prelude to the Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin. Um, I could never do the, uh, the Rhapsody in Blue itself. That was really way beyond my means, but, but I could do the second prelude. It's a kind wonderful of slow. song. Woody Allen. Yeah, Woody Allen used it in Manhattan. So anyway, so, um, but Saturday night, so I was, I was part of, I had a, an ear for classical music and my teacher was always looking for, she gave me South American classical music, uh, via Lobos, uh, anything to pique my interest. Um, and it was difficult for her because she, my friend, Peter Malo, rest in peace. He was an older guy. Um, uh, he would play piano in in the basement of the mallows using the graph structure of chord changes. And I desperately wanted to learn how to play that, and she couldn't teach it to me. She didn't know that. She just had, you know, the, the, the bar and the treble bass, and that was it. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, a, it's like a, a, a series of chord changes, and my friend Peter could improvise on all the chords and played the the Great American Songbook, which, by the way, since rock and roll hit a wall, uh, and I don't want to mention the word rap, but um, I feel the Great American Songbook doesn't is not dated, at least doesn't seem dated to me anymore, and has got lyric and beautiful music and melody. I think it's going to make a resurgence because there's nowhere else to go, um, in my opinion. But... Uh, so I grew up in classical music with Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, um, Janice, Crosby's Stills, Nash and Young, uh, John Mayo and the Blues Breakers, uh, you know, all the great rock. And I, I have a theory that in the late 60s uh, music w- w- had advanced into some kind of mystical religious experience which is beyond, certainly way beyond, although I love doo now, by the way. There was a couple of radio programs in L.A. I oh, just yeah. love The Haunting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, it, it, it went, but the late 60s, the high 60s, the Woodstock period created music that was, was really on the border of a religious mystical experience. Uh, right. And I think it never, it, it, yeah, it will never be outdone. And Saturday Night Fever was, by the way, speaking of utopian socialism, the Woodstock period, Saturday Night Fever was heralding the end of that era by now, Saturday Night Fever, you know, you work five days a week, uh, you go out party Friday, Saturday night, you go back to work on Monday, and you do the hustle. And I, right. I, I um, yeah, and I actually, one of my, my buddies at Stuyvesant, who was from the Bronx, loved dancing. And I did not. I had an attitude, you know, oh, it's too free-through, you know. And he helped me get past that attitude. And so when I ended up attitude. at the University of Buffalo, yeah, I was actually paid as a professional modern dance member of some concerts up there because I was, you know, there wasn't much competition. I mean, in Buffalo, there's not a lot of males who want to dance. but uh, And I was pretty good at it. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But, again, uh, patterned dance steps, I, never, I was never into any of them before that and never into the hustle. And they had schools sprouting up all over the place, you know, and uh, to well, me it was what's very suburban.
0: So what's so interesting about that movie, too, sorry to interrupt, uh, just in terms of the transition of music, um, I, I watched the – BG's documentary on HBO, which is an excellent documentary, and it talks about the way Saturday Night Night Fever was a phenomenon. The album came out a month before the movie did and and was a great uh, 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 promo just to get people to... to Basically, a big part of the phenomenon of Saturday Night Fever, of course, was the music, but the fact that the album came out before, kind of set, uh, you know, before the movie did, kind of set up uh, the movie to be this phenomenon. And it was, like, November when the album came out and December when the movie came out. Um, so this was bleeding into 1978. And, you know, the, the, like, specifically when it comes to the Bee Gees, they didn't view themselves similarly to the way that The Cure got uh, pigeonholed into this, this idea of goth music, even though they they, were, they, did, they never just, you know, considered themselves. Robert, Robert Smith didn't consider himself a goth artist, if you will. They never considered, the, wait, wait. They never considered I, themselves I, I, a disco
1: artist. The, the, the Jersey Shore, you're saying, was goth? No, no, because no, it no. Just the shore, Jersey Shore. The shore the,
0: I, I was only, I was only yeah. relating it to the way that, that some bands end up getting, like some other bands end up getting pigeonholed into this category when they never have viewed themselves as such. And and that was just the, with the yeah. Bee Gees specifically in Saturday Night Fever. It seems as if like the, the phenomenon that it became uh, kind of uh, ended up overshadowing the fact that they had this this wide variety of, of sound uh, uh, and they never considered themselves a disco band. They just considered themselves danceable a rock band, basically.
1: Yeah. And they weren't, they weren't and afterwards,
0: done. Oh. Yeah, they ahead.
1: weren't Donna Summer. They weren't Donna Summer. Oh, well,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. she's as, talking, talking fact, about Prolific. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, one of the kids from Bay Ridge, uh, there was a place on 86th Street down the block from PS 104 called Hinches. I think it's still there, but it was – sometimes we would go that way, sort of downtown. Uh, but there was a guy there, one of my – I knew him. I don't know from from somewhere but his name was Paul Jabara. I think he died of AIDS but he actually did a song that broke through. And um yeah, he he did something like that. So uh yeah, so anyway, I I I just divorced myself from that whole disco scene and you know, I remember going to a club uh with my father and his Third wife, and uh, you know they're all doing the hustle. And I, I, I think I asked a DJ to put some Rolling Stones on so I could, I could get down and boogie a little bit, which was you know like <laughs> freestyle dance. <laughs> and there was a real cultural antagonism between that um, experience that disco died out. But anyway, well, so that, that, and that's the, right, funny, so...
0: that's the funny thing. I know. I know we're going off on a disco tangent in some fashion, but what what ends up happening because of Saturday Night Fever is the the and what ends up happening to so many genres, including hip hop, is, is that once the the industry gets a hold of it, they 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 massacre the the entire thing by releasing. Absolute garbage that they 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 uh, uh, label as either disco or or uh, you know what have you hip hop you know just in terms of the since we're talking about the late seventies hip hop uh, coming up
1: you know they
0: they end yeah. up like one of the things one of the things that the B G S documentary talks about you know and, and mentions is disco duck now from a from a a, a campy perspective now it's kind of Listening to it, it's fun, that I can see how people who are actually into the 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 unbelievable music, because remember, disco, you have to have funk to have disco. So so there there's this interesting evolution of, uh, and then you know this is what what why I'm such a big music fan is because it, it's such a nuanced a uh, uh, thing when it when it you know when you're looking at the evolution of of, of any of these genres, it's not a big bang. Uh, if you will, uh, even, you know, as, as ACDC with Weatherby Rock kind of audibly visualizes that idea. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, what ended up happening was this culture war uh, and, and, and to an extent the way that the BG's documentary frames it, homophobia as well as racism um, when it came. Yeah. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying that that's why you, you I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, accusing you of that. But a lot of the way that that the that that the imagery that that, that the the uh, media's imagery around uh, vilifying this genre coming out of the 70s and into the 80s had seemed to have a yeah. lot to do with with that. You know, Disco Demolition Night was was uh, uh, of course talked uh, big time about that in in the documentary, but. I, I Again, I want to get, uh, I, you mentioned doo and I think that that's where I'd like to get back, to, back on track with, because that's such a major part of not only the Brooklyn sound, but also the, the New York sound. You know, Dion coming out of the Bronx, uh, and just uh, all these groups uh, standing on the street corners. Do you have any memory of, of that happening in your early life uh, when it comes to, to, you know, harmonizing on the streets of Brooklyn?
1: None whatsoever. That again would have been in Bensonhurst, um, and again one of the things that that area of Fort Hamilton was was very it was Irish, uh, not Italian. It was Irish, some Norwegian, very Anglo. So no, I never it, it I didn't get into Duop Sound until I lived in L.A. And believe it or not, in Los Angeles, there was a couple – there was great radio, and there was nonprofit uh, colleges, KCRW out of Santa Monica, uh, KPCC out of Pasadena, and they had these – a couple of different shows of these men who had entire encyclopedias of of doo-wop, and I would listen to it in my car. Um, uh, And by then, it was way, way retro to listen to doo-wop. I just found it haunting and almost, it was almost like creating a a piece of Brooklyn that I wasn't aware of. I just didn't, it was not my, 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 uh, yeah. Um, So yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to cut that short, that conversation. It's an interesting one, but I do want to get, I I ended up at the University of Buffalo where, which had a, a really good English department, but it was the height of the remnants of the, counterculture period, and there was still a lot of utopian communities, endeavors were happening, and I was very much caught up in that. Uh, the whole – Leslie Fiedler was a, is a very renowned literary critic. He taught there. Robert Creeley, the poet. Alan Ginsberg would come up frequently, uh, and that's how I got into theater. The uh, Joe Chakin's Open Theater did their piece called The Serpent, and uh, I went from playing Abel. From, it explored the roots of violence. So I went from playing, it's no, it was physical theater. And it was, I went from playing uh, Abel, murdered by Cain, uh, who was played by Maury Chaykin, uh, rest in peace. He, he had quite a bit of a career. He was at the opening of Dances with Wolves. He's the colonel who blows his brains out at the opening of the movie. And, uh, and I went on to play Lee Harvey Oswald in it with a long speech about how innocent he was and I pay my taxes, I'm a good citizen, leave me alone, as I'm miming loading a rifle. Uh, That was called The Serpent. And that's... Yeah, that's how it got into theater. Um, But I was caught up in the entire English graduate student faculty went out in a caravan to British Columbia from Buffalo to Kurt Vonnegut had a piece of property outside of uh, Vancouver, which was tropical rainforest. And somehow, a few months later, I ended up in Berkeley, uh, and uh, I ended up going up to British Columbia, hitching up to British Columbia. Uh, At that time, hitching was like the People's Express, and it was uh, completely, uh, it was like the antithesis to Greyhound and people... You know, it was safe. I never felt, I I hitchhiked all over the place. It was just what was going on, and it was not dangerous. I wouldn't say that today. But anyway, I end up there, and um, I probably would have stayed there. You know, they were building geodesic domes and, and sinking enormous trunks into the ground because it was soft. And one day, there was one phone on a tar blacktop road with barbed wire fence and cows eating alongside. And someone ran into the camp and said, uh, uh, someone called from Buffalo. They're going to call back in 15 minutes. They want you to talk to you on the phone. Go, you know. I went back, went to the phone, and this woman who had been with me, a black woman who had been with me in The Serpent, said there's this guy, now a theater company, they do experimental theater, and you get paid, Stefan, you know? And we ended up doing a <laughs> like a mass At La Mama event coming down from Buffalo and Niagara Falls, doing that. Uh, and so that was really pretty cool. I was in that for 10 months. Um, and then uh it was like a dream had ended. Uh, I came down to New York, and I was kind of lost. Uh trying to think if yeah oh before that there was a street near the uh, Niagara River on the west side of Buffalo which is pretty run down it was a building that those English graduate students uh, lived in and nobody locked their doors and there were communal dinners every night um, and so anyway so I came back to Buffalo joined that company and then Then I came back to New York and I was, I worked in, uh, my father got me a job in a contracting construction company for the summer. I lived in another brownstone in in Fort Greene. That's downtown Brooklyn. Uh, That was interesting. There's like a dozen of us sharing a big brownstone and there's a potter who had a a gas kill.
0: Just apologies, but, but uh, that, that is interesting that you found yourself back in Brooklyn. So at that time, being in Fort Greene, what, what did you notice had changed the most about Brooklyn?
1: Well, uh, I didn't know Fort Greene before that. That's, it was right across the street from Brooklyn Tech. Um, uh, sadly, uh, tragically, uh, it was a woman living in the house. We're all very free-spirited. And there was a park nearby, and she got raped. And that really blew it for me. I, I left shortly thereafter. And uh, I don't know. The The crime was a shock. That crime in particular was very shocking. And um, I don't know. Uh, so, again, it was downtown. It was, uh, you know, it was... Um, it's kind of like inner city, although everyone seemed to live, get along with each other, live side by side. Um, the only thing about it that I remember besides that is that uh, there were people coming down who were part of SDS, and they had dropped out of their college SDS organizations and were beginning to organize in the street for the, quote, revolution, unquote. It's a little bit like out of that song that Dylan has tangled up in blue. He says revolution was in the air, the cafes at night revolution. I think that's, that's kind of, that song reminds me of that period when stuff like that was going on. I kind of, um, I, I, uh, was, uh, I don't want to say traumatized, but I was deeply disturbed by that. So I left the country, uh, I left with $150 in my rucksack, uh, a one-way ticket to London. And uh, my idea was to go to the Greek islands. Uh, My people are from the Mediterranean and uh, explore my own roots, my familial roots. Um, And so uh, a a woman i have been involved with, uh, you know, I, I we, women always had these cushy, temporary jobs. She was working with, I don't know, I think Frank Reynolds on ABC in Italy for three weeks. And so she, uh, we hooked up in Geneva and we ended up on this island called Amorgos, Amorgos, A-M-O-R-G-O-S. And she was there four months. She was the only blonde woman, a blonde person on the island. And uh, the locals, had a habit of coming and looking into our windows. So after a while, she got, she got annoyed and she went back and I had written my sister who was like 15 uh, to uh, send me my last $75 in my New York bank account. And I don't know what I was going to do with $75. I mean, but uh, it, it that letter missed the boat and the boat at that time came around the islands once every three weeks. So uh, all of a sudden, one day, and I and after she left, I was lonely. Now, the funny thing about an island is that the people who live there stay by the harbor town, and they go around by boat. Well, uh, I was taking long hikes to parts. It was a long island, and there were these little bays, and it was foggy. And I remember one day, there, it was it was like there were tendrils of fog that I was. It was, I was playing in my mind that there's goes Aristotle and there's Plato and there's Alexander the Great. They all look like these historic figures to me. But out of that fog suddenly was a very real figure and he was a blue uniform and he was the uh, museum guard of the island's uh, marble history or the old pieces of ancient Greek civilization And he came up to me and said, listen, uh, what are you doing here? I said, what am I doing? I'm I'm taking a hike. And he said, this area is not for hiking. Come with me. Well, anyway, so we got to the top of the telegraph. I didn't know if I was under arrest or what. He showed me a a sort of a document. We got to the top, and uh, Mr. Lemon was the guy at the telegraph office. And he said, ah, Mr. Morrow, welcome. Your money has arrived. And so... He, at, at that time, there were 30 drachmas to the dollar, 30 drachmas to the dollar. And he started counting. So that means about uh, 100 drachmas was uh, uh, $3. So he takes out 100 drachma notes. So I figure, all right, 20 of those, you know, something like that. And then he, he does that, and he takes out uh 500 drachma note, and then another one, and then another one. <laughs> and I'm looking at it, and it's funny how your mind works very fast in critical moments. I'm looking at not 75 but $750. Well, it turns out that the Bank of Greece, through a clerical error, had given me a cash grant to go to India. And so that's what I started doing. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's a true story. I, I've never won a lottery, so I guess that's going to have to do me for the rest of my uh, born days. But <laughs> that was a, a, a meal at the Neon was maybe twenty-five cents, uh, like that. So I, I um, you know, I, I had heard that uh, you could work and volunteer on a kibbutz in Israel. They would feed you, clothe you, house you. And um, while I had been at Stuyvesant, uh, I volunteered to work on a farm, a dairy farm, up in Sullivan County, for a summer. As a farm cadet, because I read Thoreau, and I was thinking I was going to work an agrarian life like you know Walden that he wrote. Well, anyway, it had it had like a thousand acres, sixty cows. We had three machines milking them in the morning and the afternoon. So in Israel, um, I got this job in the cow barn, uh, but it was not just uh, milking cows. We did that, but we also birthed calves, which translated that means you stick your arm up to your shoulder in the cow and pull on the calf to help it give birth. So I stayed there for about four and a half months. And then um I had to fly back to Istanbul. Uh I thought I was going to get into Jordan over land and they didn't allow you to uh, to do that once you had an Israeli stamp in your passport. So I flew to Istanbul and then I went over land, uh truck, car, hitching, railroad uh, through Iran, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and then the border was still closed. So I was stuck. So After having traveled all that way, that's like 1,000 miles, um, there's a famous book called Xenophon's Anabasis, which means the retreat. And a Greek army, mercenary army, had helped uh, an Iranian uh, pasha uh, against his brother in a civil war. The brother, their their employer was killed in a battle, and they had to hike back from Persia all the way to uh, Greece, and that was like you know 1,300 miles or something. Well, anyway, so it was so I hit a wall that you couldn't go into India from Pakistan. So you know. <laughs> You heard things like, Well, they're paying a dollar fifty a day if you work in the salt mines up north of Pakistan in Pakistan. So it was it was pretty grim. <laughs> and the idea and the, and the idea of turning around was absolutely impossible. I could I would not do that. So I was getting yeah. ready to go through a work. I was making crazy hairbrain schemes. Uh, You don't want to walk through a war zone, a a closed border where they're shooting at each other. Well, there was an Australian woman of the trail. There were these women on the trail. She was husky. She was a masseuse. Uh, They're old hands. Uh, There was a whole culture of underground travelers back then. And uh, I was at this really seedy hotel in Lahore, Pakistan. There's nothing much to recommend about Pakistan is hot, dusty, no trees, not much to recommend. So, I was there like three weeks stuck. And she said, look, I, I just talked to some Australia. She was Australian. I talked to some Aussies, businessmen, they've chartered a plane. Do you want to go? I said, yeah, I want to go. Uh, so the next day we lined up at the airport, me and this uh, Finnish guy that we, you, you team up with people when you travel. Uh, and, uh, we we got on the plane. They called us out. And there were so many people. There was no... We, we sat down in the aisle, like one against the other. And the plane went up. This is a big jet. It chartered. Went up, and it went down. You know, it was like a five-minute ride and landed us in Amritsar, India, which is where the Golden Temple is. It's a famous place. But I remember getting off that plane and walking into the, out of the airport, into the countryside, it was incredible how different India was from Pakistan. I mean, the Moslems got a raw deal. That's for sure. Cause it was so beautiful. It was like palm trees, green t- deciduous trees, um, not overly hot. Uh, it was gorgeous. It was like, Oh my God, we have arrived. This is India. And so we, uh, in fact, we, we, I didn't take – they only had rickshaws, you know, where a guy pulls a rickshaw, and I just felt terrible about it. I mean, I, I did not want to engage in that activity. I felt they were terribly exploited. I, 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 now I feel differently. It was how they made a living. They were very happy doing that. I recently read an article in the New York Times. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm a frequent commenter in the New York Times. I've become, that's become my morning hobby. Um, <laughs> Uh, I really am sincere. I, 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 you know, I, I don't like to think or, or go lockstep with any particular agenda. I like to say I'm an independent.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: certainly the times has their slant. And if they don't like what you say, you don't get in. And a lot of times I don't, if it's, but I have so many experiences right. that I, that I, that to that I, a lot of them get in anyway. So, uh, that's how I ended up in India. Uh, Uh, what I would do is I'd live in a place for three months, four months, get to know the people by name in in some out-of-the-way vill. I was not a tourist. I had no exit plan. I I didn't know how long the money would run out. Um, But I was in, um, you know, so I was in Amoros, the Greek islands, for almost six months. And then uh, I was in Israel for four and a half months. Uh, And then India is the only place that was so mind-boggling. It was like they suddenly had changed the channel out of the century. You were in the 12th century somewhere. There were still black bullocks pulling a cart with wooden wheels up in the mountains. The only modern instrument was a bus. Uh, it, it so I never stopped moving for three and a half months. Uh, it, it was, uh, I, I always say, someday, I would like to go, I used to say that all you had to do was open up the lens cap on a film camera, and you would have an interesting frame. Uh, it was so beyond, beyond, and I don't say that lightly. Anyway, I was there, and then um, I went from Calcutta to Bangkok. Now, Bangkok is in the mid-70s, I guess it was, and Bangkok still had bombers uh, in uh, Vietnam. Uh, it was just before the it, it fell. And I uh, got a job in, uh, teaching English at one place, um, four places, actually. Uh, you know, you go around the city. There's a monsoon every day at 2 o'clock. I mean, downpour. I mean, a downpour. <laughs> And there were people hanging off the buses, and I had to go all over town for these gigs. And, uh, uh, and I fell in love with a girl from Connecticut, of all places. Um, <laughs> you, and, you went all uh, around the
0: world just to fall in love with a girl from. You,
1: well, you know, you know, I'll tell you something. I knew, I knew this when I was in the mountains of India. I must have drank some really bad water because I was up at a Sikh temple up in the mountains of the Himish Al Pradesh and I was, I was so, water was coming out of every orifice of my body. I mean, I, at, at a certain point, I'm on the Sikh temple's porch looking out over this mountain feeling like I'm about ready to leave the planet and uh, uh, they even brought like an ancient lead bucket next to the cot they have these little stringed cots in India you sleep on. And uh, and this guy showed up with the Sikh who was maintaining the temple. And he said, oh, you know, I'm a stringer. I just got back from Vietnam and uh, here I got enteroviaform. It's a Swiss medication. It's an intestinal flush. And I, I within 24 hours, I was back from the second step of the Tibetan book of the dead. Um, it was, it, I mean, I was really <laughs> separated from my, I, yeah. So meanwhile, so, so like, oh God, six months later, I'm now in Bangkok and I run into the same guy. Now that's very rare. You, you, when you travel, you know, you meet someone, you have a smoke, uh, there's a lot of hash around. It was just part of the uh, program. Uh, you have a, you have somebody, make, you would always have a, a sausage and some bread in my knapsack, um, share your vittles with someone, um, and then move on, share some very intimate details, you know, whatever that might come up, and then move on, never to be seen again. Well, this time, this guy showed up in Bangkok at a place, and we sat down and chatted, and, and he had gotten out of becoming a stringer. And he uh, became a drug dealer. He was going to smuggle heroin to Kathmandu. And at that time, I had no moral scruples. To me, for example, the war seemed so morally questionable uh, that, you know, things like that didn't bug me in the least. Um, Unfortunately for him... Uh, He got busted, and I I, I received um, a letter from the Australian ambassador. It looked like I'd been invited to the Australian spring ball or something. It was saying, please visit this fellow in the Bangkok jail. And, And I went down there, and it turned out that the jail was an opium den. I mean, everybody was smoking opium, but there was no food. So he was asking me to get him some food from the takeout place down the block, which I did for several weeks, and uh, unfortunately, my girlfriend, at the time, who had been seduced probably by my tales of what traveling in India was like, decided to go for herself to India, and my one one diktat in traveling was that I would not repeat a leg of, of my journey, so there's no question about returning to India, so I was brokenhearted. And she left me, and then I stopped bringing food to uh, my my poor friend in, in the jail there. Um, I, I couldn't help it; I had to get out of town. Um,
0: so, so, so let me anyway. let me cut you off at getting out of town here, because um, it, it's just so
1: it's
0: it, it's so unbelievable and fascinating all the different places that you 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 traveled to at this particular period. But first of all, since we're about an hour in, I'm going to press the reset button. You are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We are talking to, excuse me, we are talking to Fort Hamilton native and New York City theater artist Stephen Morrow. And uh, uh, Stephen, you mentioned your Greek background, and it got me thinking about your parents. Uh, So I'm curious: number one, uh, um, what drew them to Brooklyn, and number two. What was their background? What, you know, what, what, what's their story uh, from a, from a Brooklyn and New York city perspective?
1: Right. I'll tell you. Uh, my fa- they're both native born. Uh, their parents were from Europe, but they came here early on. My mother's father had three brothers and, uh, they came here without two nickels to rub together, but they worked hard. They were bright. First, uh, I think they were busboys in some posh hotel as young men. And they made some money and bought buildings up in Washington Heights. Then I think the crash happened. And uh, they bought into uh, shoe hat repair shops that have a franchise, four of them in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, they achieved the American dream. My, my grand, my mother's parents, uh, retired to a, a, what used to be a farm outside of Washingtonville, upstate New York. We we spent a lot of time up there. Um, it, it was not much to do for young kids, so I ended up reading a lot, which is, you know, which is not terrible. Um, uh, uh, so that was, that's one. So I, as as a three-year-old, they lived in the 80s, near 3rd and 4th Avenue, 83rd, 84th, something like that. And one of them owned a building at that corner, and so a couple of them lived in that building, and then my grandmother lived around the, on the block. Um, I have hazy memories of these very ethnic people, and and their English was not very, I think most of them were not, not very, uh, uh, they, they certainly had accents, but they were you know, they were clever, they worked hard, and they all succeeded in these. At that time, they, they made fortunes. They they had sailors coming into Grand Central who needed their slacks, uh, you know, repaired or, or uh, tailored or something. Uh, they had hats cleaned. Every man wore a hat. Uh, every man ha- had a shine. So that was a very uh, lucrative business to be in. Um, and uh, my father... Uh, parents his father owned restaurants in the 30s so he had a life uh, rather like you know they were well off they had money his mother had been from uh, uh, in Constantinople Noble there was uh, an, uh, like a nunnery uh, where, where the girls were sent to school she and her sister were sent to school but there was no heat so the, his mother had uh, bad lungs so they spent summers up in Cairo, New York. They wintered in Florida, um, but it was a kind of a family scandal. The the his father. I never met my grandfather. He was dead before I was around. Uh, my father's father. Uh, my father came home one day. They had a place up 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 uh, up Manhattan, Upper Manhattan, somewhere, and um, it was the apartment was empty. There was a suitcase. A $10 bill pinned to the suitcase with a note said, go see your grandmother. And that's what he did. So he was 13. So by the time he was, I guess, ninth grade, he was on his own. So he went from being a prince to a pauper overnight. And my mother was always fond of accusing him of having a chip on his shoulder. Um, He was very young. He lived as a, a schoolmate for a while. Uh, He was really like one of the little rascals growing up. Uh, When World War II started, he was 17. Not when it started, but he got in when he was 17. And uh, ended up being the 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 Pacific area of operation in the Air Force. He was on Okinawa. And he wasn't a Marine, because if he had been a Marine, I probably wouldn't be here. But he was with the air. They, they, they. The eighth air force went to Okinawa because they need. They needed a place for um, uh, damaged planes to land in an emergency. And somewhere in that time, he uh, up in. I saw a photograph he had of himself upstate in a boxing ring. He must have been, I don't know, twelve years old with boxing gloves, poised stance, and uh, he was a boxer. And so uh, also at that time, he was not big, but, you know, I can only imagine that being on your own on the street, you had to take care of yourself. So in the Air Force, he became uh, the lightweight champion in the Pacific area of operations. I read an article about that, uh, which I no longer have. But um, so that was – so he was in, and then he, when he got out, his father – oh, by the way, the fa- his father had run off with the sister – of his wife, my father's aunt. And they he ended up, his father ended up, yeah. The, now that was a big scandal in, in the 1930s right. whenever that happened. Uh, yeah. You, you know, people just getting, didn't get divorced back then. So, uh, he, he, I always felt he never recovered from the trauma. He always did have a chip on the shoulder. You know, I, I lived in I was petrified when we would ride in the car with him driving. He was one of those guys who was always ready to get out and, and, and duke it out with someone if he didn't like what they did as a driver. And I'm not, I'm quite sincere. I was petrified. Uh, You know, uh, I, I think he, he never taught me how to box, but I just was petrified. Um, uh, One time that happened and my mother was in the back seat with the, with my sister, a baby and suddenly his face, he was yelling at someone, and his face had milk streaming down his face. My mother had broken the baby (laughs) bottle over his head. Oh, my God. Now, I can laugh about this now, but when you're, you know, five or six, it was no laughing matter. He was violent, and um, I'll tell you some funny thing about this. I, I just, nobody on my block even suspected or knew, it just didn't come up that I was Greek-American. I sounded American. I looked American. I acted American. But my mother insisted uh, her first thing was for me to study the piano. The second was to learn Greek. So I had a block about speaking the language. I could understand some of it from when I was a child, but I just couldn't. I had a psychological block. They could not get me to speak word one. So she sent me this uh, after school class with this poor old lady uh, her name was Kiria Makri and I swear if I go to hell it's because of the spitballs that we threw at that blackboard with that poor lady <laughs> trying to teach us something <laughs> and, and uh, that was a PS 185 so that also meant I had to go to all the way to PS 185 from 96 which is on about 86 or 7th street and and uh, anyway so so uh, that day th- at the end of that season we had a recital and i was supposed to recite this poem to this stupid little girl in a in a like a a paper bird outfit she was wearing and she was going to stand on a chair and i was supposed to say oh you beautiful bird or something like that in in a greek poem and i was really i they were i was resisting a lot but at on 96th street there was three garages, one story, just three bays of garages, and they had garage doors, and between each bay was a little brick about three feet wide, and we would paint it with a box, and we would play stickball, and the pitcher would be across the street. Now, if you know anything about stickball, it's very hard to hit in stickball, but when you do, it goes like a rocket, a, a pink Spalding ball, this is a very Brooklyn thing, and and a black tape uh, stickball bat uh, that you would buy well anyway, I'm up there and I'm striking and I'm striking and I'm striking but one time I lammed into that ball and it went like on a straight line right into the windows of a house across the street and so the woman came out, yada 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 and my mother came out It was just around time to go to this goddamn recital. And, um, well, don't you know, she, you know, she came. My father was, um, it wasn't unheard of. My father had a garrison belt and would occasionally use it. Um, And so I was in store for something that night. So she drove to the recital and I, I, she never heard such beautiful Greek fly out of my mouth at that recital and that's how I, I missed getting another whaling. That's, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> my, yeah, my dear old dad. Um, well, you know, these guys came back from World War II. Yeah. They were victors. They were victorious warriors. And I think he felt, he, he went to NYU briefly, never finished, never really, it, it wasn't academic pursuits were not for him. Uh, so I think there was a bitterness. They were promised the world and they defeated uh, you know, the world. And I think they came back right. with a real cockiness, you know, but it was very yeah. unfulfilled. And uh I think that started So, so my question, ended- I guess,
0: my question also with in that is I've taken cues from the Gil Hodges story that Gil, you know, who, who was a, a chain smoker, uh, he also would never talk about the war. He would never t- – he, he wasn't a storyteller in that sense. And, and uh, you know, I, when I, I interviewed his son, Gil Hodges Jr., once, uh, Gil uh, agreed that that may have led to to his heart attack on the golf course in 1972. Um, that unfortunately took uh, him away from us way too early. Um, but I, I I I've kind of taken that the cues of not talking not not you you, you keep your feelings bottled up deep down inside in the trauma you don't talk about it because whether it has to do with the the American masculinity that you're talking about that cockiness coming back from the war too there's just this idea that the the male uh, American you know just bottles it up deep down inside now. Um, I've, I've kind of added this, uh, even though this, the the character within my, my story, the father, um, we're talking world war one that he's going to have to unpack over the course of the entire, uh, season and series of the show. Um, but he, he does not like to talk about his, his feelings about the war as well. So your father um, do, you, do you feel as if he bottled that? Other than the, the, the cockiness that you alluded to,
1: do you feel as
0: if he bottled everything up deep down inside and never told war stories to you?
1: He never did tell war stories. And I'll tell you, uh, again, he was the kind of father who wanted to see himself not as old school, but progressive, uh, more open, more of a big brother than an authority figure father um i'll tell you but he 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 also he was an mp and again okinawa you know it was brutal i mean it was the last island before the homeland for the japanese uh so uh, you know and and also by the way he ended up somehow being a guard or i think he were, it was it, he did a lot he was he was ambitious and Anyway, he wouldn't talk. He was dealing with a prisoner of war camp. There was only one. There wasn't that many people, Japanese soldiers, who surrendered. But he wouldn't talk, but he brought home a little tiny samurai sword, uh, uh, you know, like a replica made out of wood and with a real blade in it and also a a bomber jacket that had, you know, Okinawa 1945 or 6 or whatever it was, uh, painted on the back with clouds and Mount Mount Fuji or something. So that's the only, he never, ever talked, except, he didn't even mention the, the boxing thing. Um, I, if you were to ask me, I think his whole history from the time he was on his own, um, again, I might've been different, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, the horrific combat that a lot of American soldiers went through hand-to-hand at night uh, it's beyond our reckoning. Um, so I, I don't yeah, know. Exactly. I, I think he, uh, wherever he came from, he was very quick to ignite, and he was mm. strong, and he was very good with his fists. So he had no fear. Right. But I will say this much, he did feel that what he called paper a-holes were getting all the good shots. And he felt like he was being treated out of his, uh, shot at the gold, at the, at the, uh, the gold, the gold ring. And right. eventually he, he got involved in commercial real estate. He managed about 16 properties for somebody named Peter F. Sharp, who's, uh, inherited buildings in Manhattan, and he was the manager for 16 properties. That's, that's saying a lot because that means contractors would come in and make a bid on putting up new drywall or a new ceiling or a new air conditioning. Every time a new client moves into a building, they want their own space configured. So what I'm getting at is it's all these contractors are putting in... It's very corrupt. New York real estate. If, it's amazing to me that Trump... Uh, did not get nailed. You have to deal with the mob if you were in commercial real estate in Manhattan. You cannot yeah. put up yeah. as many buildings uh, without dealing with the Italians. They have the sanitation industry. They have uh, the uh, uh, concrete the cement truck. Con- exactly. If, if that concrete, you know those round turning drums, if somebody tells the guys on the site, he's not, he's not good people. They don't get unloaded, and within twenty minutes, that whole load starts to solidify. It's dead. So anyway, right. the point is, it's very corrupt. And my father, feeling like he was never given his proper due, um, uh, you know, he he knew a lot of people, and and he made a lot of money and spent it all. And and yeah. you know, what can I say? Yeah. And uh, I, I will wow. add this much. He. Um, he was yes. bouncing. Around. Let me just tell you, he was bouncing around uh, Manhattan when there was uh, what's that place? Uh, oh, I forgot. There was a place that Joe Namath had on the Upper East Side. Big singles, swinging singles, places like that were all around. Um, uh, he ended up uh, Sinatra would hang out at a place called Jilly's. Jilly's. It's in the high 40s on Broadway, off Broadway, on the second floor. And somehow or other, uh, he became uh, fond, and, had, and my father was hanging out with him. Now, meanwhile, you want to I was completely out of the picture. As a matter of fact, I remember being at a party after that uh, with some people, and uh, somehow it came up, and I said, as a teenager, it's, it was quite evident to me that Frank Sinatra was the embodiment of Satan. And that that got a big (laughs) laugh. And then I discovered I discovered Jonathan Schwartz on WNYC, and he turned me on. He's the expert on all sessions, all details, everything about Sinatra. And he turned me on to that sound. And now I can't get enough of Sinatra. But my father, yeah, my father. Go ahead.
0: No, no, I was just going huh? I was just going to segue. Hi, I'm here. Um, I, I was just going to segue uh, that w- when, when it comes to Frank Sinatra, you know he's, he's a perfect example of, of that uh, bra- bra- uh, bravado that we were talking about with the American Mail, um, but you know, he, he obviously had that tough guy persona, but then you have an album like "In the We Small Hours of the Morning." when he bears his yeah. entire soul and is as vulnerable as anybody can be. You know, this is what, this is what the arts are sometimes for, is for channeling yeah. that, you know, for, for him, you know, and, and I think you and I talked about it off air, the, the uh, devastation of his Ava Gardner relationship. Um, and, and, you know, God, just any, picture that you, any, yeah. any, any picture you see of her, you can kind of understand how uh, a man in the late forties and early fifties would have gotten uh, uh, would have had a very tough time saying goodbye to her, um, and, and, you know, when when you had such a, a early on uh, a, a, just a you know whirlwind of oh, um, Yeah, yeah. A, and
1: unfortunately, I... oh,
0: yeah. Go ahead. Uh, unfortunately, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to wrap it up soon, but we can uh, we can take until four thirty.
1: So go ahead. Okay, well, we um, I I I should talk about some of my work in the theater. Um, the first time I cottoned to Sinatra at all, I was doing a, a Leonard Melfi play. This is in a small theater company I was part of, and we used it as soundtrack. Uh, and it's sort of it was uh, in the 80, early eighties, and um, it seemed like the culture had retroed to the 50s in a way. Nothing much was happening. And it sort of was of a piece of this play uh, about a, a young carpenter going to an Upper East Side woman's apartment to put some furniture cabinet in or something. And they have an affair. It was called Lunchtime. And uh, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, so that was the first time. I was able to, uh, in any way, relate to to Sinatra's sound. But um, I have to say, after I came back from traveling, um, uh, it was very hard to adjust. In fact, I was envious of Vietnam veterans who had these groups to go to, therapy groups. When you travel, you're on your own. You're alone. You're not a caucus you're not representing a group. There's no organization of it. I don't think I've met anyone who traveled around the world. I know there's some people like that around, but I, I don't. I've met, never ran across them. Never met anybody in the arts that said, you know, I went around the world. And it was just one of those odd things that I fell into, and that was very uh, rare and unique, almost. So, anyways, so I come back to New York, and. Uh, the great teachers were still around, and I was lucky to get into study with them eventually. Uh, Stella Adler uh, gave me a scholarship to study with her. Lynn Hanman ran the American Place Theater. He was my teacher for several years. And later, Ruta Hagen. I'd already been directing by the time I went back to her um, to study. And I, each teacher has something different to offer. Um, so it's good to get a cross-section of that. Um, and, uh, Kazan, I, I, I auditioned for the actor's studio and I was not part of that inner circle. I never was a lifetime member, became a lifetime member, but, uh, I was curious from Kazan. He was still around. He ran what they call the playwright director's unit. And I wrote him a letter. I said, look, I want to learn from you how you got the performances that we all love from Brando, from Vivian Lee you know, on the waterfront, Rod Steiger, all of them. And um he gave me a shot. He didn't know me from Adam. Uh I and so I'm you know, he named names. Some people would never would cross the street to avoid him till the end of his life. For me he was a stand up guy and and gave a young kid who wanted to needed a little encouragement. I directed maybe two or three plays, tops. And I was sitting next to hmm this old guy with a gravelly voice, uh, you know, hi, how are you, kid? What are you doing this week? And it was Joe Mankowitz. Now, I, I didn't even know who Joe Mankowitz was. <laughs> I might have seen All About Eve, but that's about it. So, yeah, I was like well, getting admitted into the office of
0: Before you continue, two episodes, I think it's two episodes ago, uh, we had Nick Davis on, who is a film director. He's directed uh, uh, plenty, of, uh, a, a lot of films, but the one that, that uh, is near and dear to my heart is Once Upon a Time in Queens, the story of the 1986 New York Mets for, thir- for ESPN's 30 for 30. But he's also, um, Joe Mankiewicz, I believe is, let me see exactly what the thing is. Uh, um, I believe um, Herman was his great uncle and Joe was his grandfather. Uh, but it's just interesting you you mentioning uh, uh, Joe Mankiewicz here because just uh, we talked uh, incessantly about the Mankiewicz brothers uh, two episodes
1: ago. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, there there was something. Herman was a pisser, yeah. Um, uh, and and uh, Joe Mankiewicz, A uh, Letter to Three Wives, that's a, a work of genius. Uh, he's known for All About Eve, but uh, he did other things that are at, at least as good. I'm blanking out on the other I'm trying to think of, but A uh, Letter to Three Wives is one of my favorite films. It's just wonderful. But anyway, so I got into that and um, playwrights in the unit were getting angry because they just wanted to hear their plays read, the rhythm of the play, their voice as the playwright, uh, John Floyd Noonan. Uh, and uh, so one time a director, Lenore DeKoven, asked me to read. I had read stage directions. Now, sometimes They had a stage manager read the stage directions. That's a mistake. The stage directions reader is like Rob Serling as the host of Twilight Zone. He sets the tone. He's the host. So I did that a couple of times. And then Lenore came up and said, look, I lost lost an actor for next week's reading. Would you read? And I took the play home, and I said, my God, this is a great role. About a Scottish gang leader, teenage Scottish gang leader in Dundee trying to go straight. So we did the reading the next... I went to... Uh, my last teacher was Liz Dixon who worked with Michael Douglas when he got the Academy Award for Wall Street Number 1 and uh, worked hard on the accent and came in and uh, I was pretty effective. She asked me to do another reading. Uh, Bobber Boys by Willie Holtzman was called. So we do this and we did even a workshop run at the studio. And then uh, one time uh mailer saw it and and i was opposite a guy who was a soap opera actor who young actors dare i say has some scorn for uh theater actors had scorn for soap opera people so uh i had a good night it was like you know at the garden when you have a good night you know it's your night and so afterwards i see this guy with a flock of silver hair talking to this soap opera actor and I was a little high in my own perfume. I put myself right in his path after they finished chatting. And sure enough, it was Norman Mailer who said to me, you know, there's a role you might like, you might find interesting. If you're not busy, call my assistant. So that started our relationship. And um, his play called Straw Head about Marilyn. And um, a year later, and I did some really good work for him. I, I played uh, a motorcycle man who allegedly took Marilyn on a ride going 80 miles an hour and uh, giving it to her uh, on the ride. And uh, it was quite a risque. We only had two cubes and a fan to to create the scene. And uh, it was powerful. And in the middle of it, Shelley Winter stood up and said, you don't know she did this. I think this is outrageous, blah, blah, blah. And the next time we did it, there was a woman planted in the audience to say the same exact thing because Norman always loved playing with is this theater or is it real? Things like that. So it was a year later he called and said, you know, I'm doing this film of my novel, Tough Guys Don't Dance. Are you, do you have time to come in on an audition for it? I said, oh, yeah, well, if I don't win the lottery tomorrow, maybe I'll have time. And, and I had, a. and he knew my work, but I didn't just walk through the front door and I'd done some good work for him, but you know, Auditioned three times, and I I got to perform in that film. Uh, Everybody in the world wanted to be in that. Ryan O'Neal, Isabella Rossellini, hot best-selling novel. It became a cult favorite. It was uh, hard to follow, but it had great dialogue. Speaking of which, had great. I think that's. I'm I'm good at dialogue, and uh, uh, less good at imitating De Niro or Pacino. Uh, there's nobody going to do better than those guys at what they do. Uh, you know, uh, Street Italians. I, I recently saw Mean Streets, and boy, De Niro was smoking in that. So I, I but yeah, in Dialogue. Great movie. Yeah, in Dialogue, I can do a lot with Dialogue. So anyway, um, so that's one. then, uh, oh, what happened? Then somehow I hooked up with the first play I ever acted in as an adult with Mario Fradi a play called The Cage up at the Manhattan Theater Club. And uh, he, I I hardly knew what I was doing at that point, but I did something. And he begged another director to use me. Unfortunately, I didn't get along with that director. And uh, by the end of it, we would hardly speak. I thought he was a Nazi. (laughs) I just thought it was, this is not coming from the uh, method or anything. (laughs) Go here, go there, sit down, you know. So then, Mario went on to work on this musical. I had no interest in musicals. And then he went on to do nine, the Tony Award winning nine. And um, years later, I'm doing a reading in an apartment. And lo and behold, Mario, 25 years later, shows up and he asked me to to play. I, I started working in L.A. I had started the Great American Play Series where I, resurrected as performances on book stage readings of american neglected classics i started with uh the crucible uh which is not exactly neglected but it was during clinton's impeachment trial and uh everyone said oh this is about informing about mccarthy and i said yeah but that was then this is now this is now about an older man having an affair with a younger woman and paying the price and invasion of privacy issues and, at that, and I took a lot of heat for that out there. I had Barry Primus, Lisa Richards. Huh. Uh, and at that moment, Arthur Miller wrote a long article in the New York Times saying pretty much verbatim what I had said about The Crucible, that it had changed meaning for him. So then I did mm-hmm. After the Fall with Rebecca Mornay, uh, Barry Primus, Wow Kessler, uh, Mark Rydell playing the Arthur Miller character. Uh, it was a great time. I did, then I did The Price, because Barry and uh, Lyle Kessler, Barry Primus, were so good as the attorneys in After the Fall. then we got Paul Mazursky to come on board as the furniture seller and Judith Light before she won two Tonys back-to-back. So I could get 325 people into a theater with no advertisement, with a couple of names, but then you had to do the work. You know, I rehearsed six weeks. Uh, Paul Mazursky said to me once, gee, you know, i performed a lot, believe it or not up in the Catskills as a young comic, blah blah blah, but I said this is because I started him moving him around and said this is uh this is involved <laughs> and uh, uh, and he stole the show. he was incredible so I uh, came back and i it was after nine eleven I decided to do incident at Vichy uh, which is about the persecution of Jews in France when the Germans took over. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had Barry Primus was in four Arthur Miller premieres. So I had been in touch with Miller through Barry and he came. I had F. Murray Abraham, oh, wow. Austin Pendleton. Yeah. And it was great. And playwrights like to see you know, their plays done with.
0: Great, Of course, exactly. And what I think what's so fascinating too is that even though a lot of this uh, you know the, the the your life story happens after the the Dodgers leave there's so many things intertwined with the the both the stories and thematics whether it be McCarthyism uh, uh, whether it be uh, just just you know uh, the playwrights of the time uh, like Arthur Miller using some of those themes uh, within the context of the 50s um, you know Elia Kazan uh, you know, on the waterfront like like it, it, it does always come back, and you know, for me, my my series would take place between 1937 and 1957, technically 1962 till 1962, but very briefly. Obviously, um, uh, you know, I'm always about uh, both bringing it back to Brooklyn of the era, but also bringing it back to to the the all of these different stories and themes that uh, that are. Are squeezed within that time period, and uh, you you have a lot of that those parallels. And if, I also think if you um, look
1: at if, we, if, if you look at the history uh, of Brooklyn, you will find many names uh, who achieved remarkable things came from uh, the gene pool of Brooklyn. For some reason, in the forties, fifties, right. it was remarkable how many outstanding intellectuals, uh, makers of art, of fiction, scientists, physicists. It was a tremendous pool of, of gifted people coming out of Brooklyn. I've read that somewhere. And may I Um, I also
0: say too, that at the time that I was doing the podcast with Nick Davis, I had not seen all about Eve. And then I finally see it in between then and now. Um, and, for starters, it was one of my, the, the, the best movies I've ever seen. Oh, it instantly became one of my favorites. And, I mean, it, like, talk about dialogue. Joe Mankiewicz could clearly write dialogue. Excellent. Uh, very funny dialogue. But at the end of You're, uh, the movie, the only one. Spoiler, spoiler, right, and spoiler, spoiler alert for anybody out there who hasn't seen it, but if you haven't, it, it has been 70 years now, so I think I, I, I my window's good. Um, the, at the end of the movie, uh, Eve is basically in the exact same place and persona as, as the woman she was uh, attempting to, to replace, more or less. And there's uh, uh, a, a young girl who has come all the way from Brooklyn, who goes to Erasmus Hall High School and has an Eve fan club. Basically replaces the 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 Eve role. So, but my point being, of course, is it I have both a Brooklyn reference at the end of All About Eve, as well as an Erasmus Hall High School reference,
1: which just really, yeah, yeah. you know, it's I an gotta amazing. Check that out. It's an amazing line. When that comes out, it's an amazing line. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's he was very very good. He had a nervous breakdown after Cleopatra. Never did anything again much, but. Right. Uh, right. it's, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm writing, directing, and acting now in the last three projects that I've done, so I know what that's like. Especially, he had millions right. in Off-Broadway. You have now. I was gonna. I'll finish up with uh, Mario brought me to theater for the new city, which Crystal Field is the executive director of. And I, I, uh, he kept. We had no contract, but he liked what I did with his plays, and he kept hiring me to direct seven productions over a 10-year period, and introduced me to Theatre of the New City, which is where you have freedom pretty much to do what you like if you propose a project, and that's how um, I started doing my own projects. Uh, I was very disturbed by the invasion of Ukraine, so I wrote Darkness After Night, which has now uh, been made an official selection of the Marina del Rey Festival. Happening next month. Congratulations! And then I, before that, I did uh, the assassination of Jay Kaiser, and the rise of Augustus. I set, I set and Cleopatra in uh, soprano lingo, figuring you know the <laughs> Romans were the original gangsters in a way. And that, that won best sci-fi feature in the um, Golden State Film Festival last month. Uh, it, it takes place after World War Three. And, uh, you know, I wrote it in, like, Tony Soprano lingo. Um, <laughs> and I filmed these things in the, in the vein of the golden age of TV, uh, which probably relates mm. to Brooklyn as well, because they were in close. They had very limited means, but they had incredible actors like uh, Martin Landau, um, Ken Stanley, mm. James Dean, Ed Asner. Uh, but they were shooting right. close, and it would be on a little sound stage. Was very minimum budgets, but they had great acting and, and close up uh, camera work. And um, I got very lucky when I did. I was another project this year that came up out of the blue. Was I was invited if I wanted to take it on uh, on Valentine's Day last valent not this one the previous year's Valentine's Day. Crystal Field called me and said. A cast got COVID, they shut the actors union, equity shut the production down on opening night. Can you recast it, non-union, act the lead, memorize the lead, direct it, put it on a set you had nothing to do with the design of, and direct it and get it up in a month. So that's a lot to say. But I, I was determined. It was about two, two young at-risk youths who mug an attorney and he turns their lives around so they become attorneys in the end. And it was based on their true story. It wasn't just a feel-good kind of thing. So, um, right. so we, we did that. And, um, uh, and now uh, I'm working on another, another story uh, about Ukraine. I, I, I feel it's important to... It, it, we, we live in such a New York bubble. I mean, people just don't seem hmm. to want to know uh, you know, the, their idea of supporting Ukraine is by going to Veselka's on the Lower Side and getting a meal. You know, and that's it's, it's a terrible, thousands and <laughs> thousands, both Ukrainian and Russian soldiers have been killed as well as civilians.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, in my story, Darkness After Night, Ukraine, uh, a Russian commander sees a hospital, children's hospital getting bombed and goes over to the Ukrainian side. Um, uh, it, 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 you know, it's off, off Broadway. You can still see plays that are not just entertainment. Uh, Pablum, you know, the Tonys nominations came out yesterday, and you know, musicals. and all. I mean, it's, it's fine, but nothing. I, it just seems like we live in a bubble here. It's like uh, the, in, being an ancient Rome. Uh, speaking, speaking of
0: speaking of. Speaking of Tony's and and we have to, we have to go after this. Speaking of the Tony's, just thinking about the era that I was uh, talking about with uh, the 1940s and 1950s, you'd have to consider that era with Oscar and Hammerstein and and South Pacific. I forget, I forget who, who is the, uh, the, the composer and, and, and book of uh, South Pacific, but it might actually be Oscar and Hammerstein too. Actually, uh, no, anyway, um, but, but, you know, my dad was in, like, one of my earliest memories of my dad performing uh, was as an MP in South Pacific. And, and you have to consider that era to be, especially, like, you know, the year that, that the Dodgers won the World Series, damn Yankees, comes out. Um, you have to consider <laughs> it that that was the peak of Broadway. As good as, as Broadway can be sometimes, I, I personally think it's lost its way a little bit but I'm not, I'm not a fanatic uh, in any sh- uh, way, shape, or form. Um, but I like theatrics, I, and, and, and the most important part is, is, uh, for, you know, of musicals is that the song means something to move further the story along. Sometimes I think modern musicals forget that element and just have a musical number to have a musical number. But yeah, the, like, speaking of the Tonys and speaking of theater, you'd have to say that that era is the peak of Broadway the golden age of
1: Broadway. Well, all I can tell you is uh, I, I think you're onto something. Um, it, 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 I don't know. It just seemed to be of a period back then. Murray Schiskel, who I worked with several times, wrote Love, which was on Broadway for three years in the 60s, said to me when he was younger, Broadway had a serious theater-going audience and serious writers being produced on Broadway. Now, I don't, you know, every now and then there's a prestige production, but Off off Off-Broadway arena has become the last bastion of being able to do theater work that seems to have significance. And uh, that's all I can say. Uh, I I will, in closing, say I saw Leopoldstadt twice, because I thought it was the best piece of theater I've seen in years. That had significance. Yeah. It was about something of import, and it was well done. Now it's, it was. It's some of the cast is British, the director, and of course Stoppard. But it was. Um, it was just made me feel like I was gaining something by witnessing that performance. So I'll give Broadway that credit. I wish was wish there was more like that, um, but for me. Mm-hmm you know, if, if that's uh, off off Broadway is, is, uh, still there, even though there's much less of it than before, uh, it's, it's still got the freedom with limited budgets that it has to, to do things that people believe in. Not all of it. God knows there's some stuff right. like that's not too good, but, but yeah, that for me has become a home and, uh, sort of like independent film. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm so tired of the franchise superhero films. Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, the film festival arena is again doing personal films that somebody believes in passionately because there's never any money or not enough, and uh, you've got to. Well, if you in if you look
0: doing, at the and, if you look at the the the, uh, the returns for these films. You're not the only one who has, and I don't want to call it superhero fatigue. I'm pretty sure it's bad movie Hollywood fatigue.
1: Yeah, well, I you know, all I know is, uh, you know, we live in a different world. We live in a world now, a point in history of what I call great power competition. And so everything has changed. And I think we have to be very aware of that, that the world is on a a rather delicate balance of uh, mm. apocalypse or uh, extorting to not do the right thing because of the threat of nuclear war. So, and meanwhile, China is uh, declaring itself as preeminent and supreme, and I think that's dangerous. You, you don't want to be ruled by the Chinese, uh, as corrupt as things are here, uh, it's not something I would uh, uh, promote uh, Chinese replacing the U S with all its imperfections. So I, I think, you know, again, I think we have to address that and we have to do it in our yeah. art, past mm-hmm. tribal identity competition. Uh, I'm all for equal opportunity, but only if it merits my attention. And uh, I see too much of that mm-hmm. going on. I see too much of people in the bubble, New York bubble uh, we have to be engaged well, in the world
0: i I will yeah. uh, finish with this um, i one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this project is because I think the era of nineteen thirty seven to nineteen fifty seven is the most important twenty year period in modern American history, and I think everything that we are going through and everything that we have gone through in the tail end of the 20th century and now in the, the first part of the 21st century um, can all be traced back to the tail end of the depression following through the war to post-war uh, policies and, uh, every, and thematics and everything of that nature. Uh, um, that's one of the big reasons why I want to explore this through the eyes of uh, and through the corner of Bedford and Sullivan and the story of Brooklyn and its Dodgers. Sounds and, good. And that's and that's where I'm at. <laughs> you have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and uh, we have been talking with Fort Hamilton native and New York City theater artist Stephen Morrow. Uh, Stephen, closing remarks, whatever uh, whatever you want to want to say.
1: Well, I think I just made them. I think it's important for art to reflect the world around us and its threats and, and uh, newly emerging uh, threats that are happening. I think it's uh, very dangerous to be uh, like in ancient Rome where everybody wanted to be in Rome where the money was. Uh, nobody was uh, volunteering for the Roman legions. Uh, they're more invested in catching the latest hot gladiator uh, rather than joining the uh, military to defend their homeland, I think this is very counterproductive um, and I think art again is uh, the, it, as far as i 'm concerned, only in the awful Broadway arena, except for the occasional exception, like opposed that uh, uh, it, it, it has to address what 's going on i 'm very over. The uh, daddy did this to me, mommy did that to me. We need to have art that reflects the world around us or we're lost. We're like, you know, putting our heads in the ground and hoping for the best, drinking the Kool-Aid. This is dangerous. And I'm not someone who's brought up in that tradition. Like I said, I was part of the country culture, but the world has changed. And to repeat the same rhetoric from 40 years ago, you're like a, a, a fly in amber which is, 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 uh, is extremely dangerous, in my humble opinion. So,
0: And I appreciate the, those sentiments. Uh, Stefan. thank you so much for joining me today. It has been such a, a fantastic conversation, and uh, you are welcome back anytime.
1: Okay. It's great. It's been great. Thank you for the opportunity. It's always good to get word out there. Um, I believe in independent voices, uh, you know, too much is is uh, codified and, and packaged, and uh, I, don't, I don't trust, you know, I, I think it's important. So, all right, farewell. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Sam.
0: Fair. Absolutely. Thank you, Stefan, And thank you all for listening to the Bedford & Sullivan podcast today. We'll be back soon. Take care.